0: If you your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, that's page 947 of your pew Bibles. We'll begin in verse 16 this morning. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the big six there would be the chapter number, the little 16 would be the verse or we're beginning. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 6. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? Some of you probably think, my questions. <laughs> Last time it was, what do you need? This time, what do you fear? I want you to think about it. is there something that regularly gives you anxiety? That kind of heavy, spiraling feeling? I want you to also... Okay, we're all probably afraid of Sharks. We don't live our lives constantly fearing them. What are you afraid of? What are the necessary conditions for anxiety? Haddon, that's my son, my oldest son, we just started playing Minecraft. It's okay, one of us are six. (laughs) You might be familiar with it. I think it's the most popular game in the world. It's kind of like Legos. You can think of like Legos. You're building things only using blocks and you have to actually mine. You go out and get the materials to make the things that you want to make. And people have recreated cities like L.A., worlds, other places like Hogwarts. The limit is really your imagination. Had and I, we're not very good. He's not very good. (laughs) We play on the Switch, and he actually shuffles his body with his character. We're trying to recreate our house right now. You know, we're not doing something like Hogwarts. We're just trying to recreate our house. Now, to build something, you need materials, like wood, which you get from trees. You end up needing stone, gems, different things that you get from deep down in the earth. So Had and I, the other day, we had built this, this mine system, basically, to get deep down into the earth where we're, we're getting the kind of materials that we need. And uh, the days and nights move really quickly in Minecraft, so you don't know, really, if it's day or night when you're down below because you can't see the surface. Had and I been down there for a long time. We started making our way up our kind of stairwell, which takes a long time. We're, like, at the bottom of the Minecraft world. And we get towards the top, and I'm like, oh, shoot. I can see the surface, and I see that it's nighttime. He wants to start running back down into the cave. Now, if you've played, you know why he's scared. It's because at night, the mobs come out. These are like zombies and skeletons, spiders, wizards, some of you know. And they try to, you know, kill your character. Haddon's afraid of them. Typically, at nighttime, we would go to sleep. We have, we have beds in our home. You sleep at night, you wake up, it's morning, the mobs are gone. We can't do that because we're in this, we don't have beds with us. We're in this little stairwell. I tell Haddon, we're going to run for the house. I say, you can trust me. We can make it, but you've got to stay close to me. We can do this. Okay? He says, okay. So we come out. Now, when you come out of the stairwell, you can see our house in the distance. The temptation would be to run straight for it, but you won't make it because there's a retaining wall and a fence. I've made this nice little pathway with gravel that veers off to the left. So... (laughs) I come out, I tell Haddon, sprint and stay with me. So I'm running, I'm running to the left, you know, fighting little mobs and stuff. And then I hear Haddon yelling, dad, dad. Okay, I look over and his little, his body's shuffling. He did the foolish thing. He ran straight for the house. He's running into the retaining wall that he can't get over. There's a fence. Now, okay, he's screaming. Whatever you think about this situation, turn it up to like an 11, okay? The most scared you've been recently. This is how Haddon's feeling. Pavy and Josie are in the background. They're screaming as well. They can, see, they can see the bad guys coming to him. I'm yelling at him, Haddon, turn to your lives in fear. Okay? I start running toward him. He's screaming. He's about to start crying. And I see this little, it's what's called a creeper. It's like this green guy that just blows up. It's getting closer. Those of you know what it is. He's getting closer and closer to Haddon. It gets to Haddon. It blows up. His little character dies. He starts crying. Okay? Pray for us. Or... <laughs> contribute to our counseling. (laughs) Now, Haddon was afraid, and with reason, right? The mobs come out at night. He's not good enough to defend himself. Think about some of these preconditions. He fears something. It's out of his control. He thought he had a better idea about how he'd get home. The mistake he made was he took his eyes off his dad. Now, I want you to think again about what you fear and why. You see, we fear something, I think, because initially we perceive a threat. Like, if this happens to me, it will hurt me. It could be physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, relational, minecraftical. Okay, if this happens, it will hurt me. If I lose my job, if that person gets close to me, if my coworkers find out this. But it's anxiety you have to add to that an understanding of just how little you can control. Now, this doesn't mean you won't try to control, right? Between now and the biopsy report, you spend all your time on WebMD, doing nothing to impact the report, only decreasing your mental state, if not your physical state. So why are we anxious about any given thing? It's because we perceive a threat. We recognize how little we can control and one more ingredient, we live as though there is no God. Not only are we not in control, no one is. Okay? Atheism in the face of pain is the root of anxiety. We assume and act like we're all alone and so we live in fear. So think again, what is it you fear and why? What do your fears or your anxieties have to do with fear? god both with the storms of life and with his people john 6 beginning in verse 16 if you're able i will invite you to stand with me for the reading of god's word john chapter 6 when evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to capernaum Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Now, by way of context, last time we saw the fourth of seven signs in the first half of the book of John. Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed well over 5,000 people. Jesus revealed himself once again as Israel's God and Messiah, the one who had come to give his people eternal life. Now the people recognized on some level that Jesus was a prophet who would come into the world. They wanted to make him king by force. It looks like they accepted Jesus, but really they rejected him. They wanted Jesus to be king on their own terms. Jesus then retreated back up the mountain. The point of the sign we saw is that Jesus gives life. We have a need for life, and Jesus provides for that life. And I want to revisit our big idea from that sermon. We saw that God meets all of his people's needs. God loves to care for his people. He loves to meet our needs. He ordinarily does so without us even noticing. God meets all of his people's needs. If you have an unmet need, it's either not a need. This is often the case. We have desires. They might even be good desires, but not something we need for life and godliness. So it's either not a need or... God is temporarily withholding something from us. He's trying us that we might learn that he is sufficient for us. What we're gonna do this morning is kind of double click on the idea of trial or zoom in on it to see how it actually gives us more of Jesus. What we and the disciples should have learned from the last sign that Jesus is sufficient to meet our every need, even, we might say, especially in the midst of trial, it will be put to the test. We'll see that Christ tenderly, sovereignly what we fear the most, that we might trust in him all the more. We see that through trial we get more of Jesus. It's because the trial sends us to Jesus. Three lessons from the text this morning, we'll see, Lord willing, that Jesus sends us into the storm Second, Jesus meets us in the storm, and third, Jesus leads us through the storm. We could think of these storms as the trials of life. Jesus sends us into the storm, Jesus meets us in the storm, and Jesus leads us through the storm. Again, this is all that we might trust Christ more than we fear the world. First, Jesus sends us into the storm. Now, If you're looking there at the text of John 6, you might wonder, where am I getting this from? It's more explicit in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately, so this is after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. So Matthew tells us that Jesus actually sent the disciples ahead of him by sea. Now, If I send you on a trip or to the store or something and it begins to storm, am I liable for that? Uh, If I didn't know it was going to storm, no. If I did know and I didn't tell you, if I actually caused the storm, you see that John has clearly at this point made very clear through his words and through the words and actions of Jesus that Jesus is God. We saw in John 1.1 and John 1.18 that Jesus is God. Recently in Jerusalem when he heals the man on the Sabbath, Jesus exempts himself from the Sabbath command, command by appealing to his relationship with the Father and their shared work. Jesus has made it clear to us that he is the God of Israel. So as God Christ not only knows the sea he sends them into, he not only knows the storm will come, but he actually brings it. Psalm 107, verse 23 Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky and sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish, they reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless." We see that Jesus is going to bring the storm and actually bring a storm that surpasses their skill. They'll find themselves in a position where their skills are useless for what they're facing. Jesus does this because he loves them. He does it to reveal more of himself to them. He does it to increase their trust in him. Jesus treats us. So Jesus sends a storm beginning in verse 16. You can look at the text. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. John is setting the stage here for a trial and a miracle. The darkness of night, a storm on the sea, no Christ to be found. And the first thing that John wants us to see, if you look again there at the text is that it's evening, verse 16. Verse 17, darkness had already set in. Now, as we've been through the book of John, as you've been reading it in your quiet times, in your D groups you probably have picked up that light and darkness are major themes in the book of John. And in fact, I'll encourage you to turn back with me to John chapter one. Beginning there, verse four. In him, that is in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Then verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. There in verse 10... No, sorry, there, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Darkness in John represents the world's willful, ignorance that has been seared by sin, such that when God comes to visit you, you don't even recognize him. When you're his own, his own people, you reject him. And yet Christ is, Christ is the light of the world coming in to bring salvation to God's people. So you might think darkness bad. It's kind of an easy thing to grasp. The fear of darkness is not something that's just reserved for children. We tend to be more alert at night, probably especially those of us who live in a city. We walk, walk more quickly to or from our cars. We take our trash out more quickly. We understand that darkness, the cover of darkness, is when people like to commit evil because they think that they're hidden from the state and from God. The deeds of the darkness match the knowledge of darkness. It's godlessness. So we have this first picture of the setting, this first piece of the setting that John is giving us, which is darkness. A theme he has developed, he will develop. The disciples find themselves in darkness Their salvation will come by means of the light of the world. The second thing he has to see is that they're on the sea. They're on the sea when a storm begins to form. Now, if you've read Revelation before, Revelation chapter 21, the same gospel writer John has a vision there where there's no sea. He sees there's no sea. And maybe you've wondered why. It's not because water's bad. I'm not sure that we're to take John literally in the sense that we won't be able to sail or scuba in the new heavens and the new earth. Rather, he's using apocalyptic genre to bring hope and comfort to the people of God. He says, there's no sea. Why is it good news? It's because in scripture, the sea represents chaos. You think about the waters at creation in Genesis 1, they're pictured as chaotic. God subdues them. The water's of Genesis 7 flood the world God brings them back he subdues them to bring peace Isaiah describes the wicked like the tossing of the sea in Isaiah 57 Paul very similarly in Ephesians chapter 4 describes the teaching of the wicked or false teachers as wind and waves that tosses around the children of God the sea is often described as the place of death and therefore a kind of gateway to the underworld in the Old Testament 2 Samuel chapter 22 verses of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. So the sea is a place of chaos that man cannot subdue. For good reason. It's the place where people go to die. Jews were terrified of the water. Many of us are terrified of the water. I was born in East LA and When I was young, when we were in the third grade, we had a boat in Long Beach. We would take it out, and I hated it. I was terrified. If I was more terrified of my dad, if I was less terrified of my dad, I would have sabotaged our boat. Like I I saw a seagull flying away with a propeller. I have a very distinct memory of one time when I was a child, probably third grade or so, uh, where we were out at sea at night, and a storm began to form. You could feel the wind And the rain coming down, the waves were starting to grow. We're trying to make our way over them to get back to shore. And the overriding feeling was fear. Again, potential for harm, lack of control in a word, chaos. And the disciples, many of them were fishermen. They would have understood better than anyone that the sea is chaotic. You cannot tame or control it. They lived their lives on it. They probably knew many who died in it. This is probably their greatest fear. It was in the darkness of night, in the middle of the sea, and importantly, without Christ. Or at least it appears if you look at verse 17. Again, John writes Jesus had not yet come to them. I don't miss this. Jesus didn't start the trip with them, Jesus didn't walk to them before the storm started, Jesus didn't get there right when it began. He didn't even get there maybe after they'd been dragged by the wind for a mile. He waited until they were sucked into the middle of the sea, the place of chaos and death. He waited until they were most desperate and without hope. Mark actually tells us that Jesus kept his eye on them from the mountain. Jesus sent the storm and he waits. Now it's not because Jesus is calloused. It's because he cares. You might think about Jesus hearing about how his friend Lazarus was sick and knowing that he has the power to heal him and yet waiting a few days for him to die. Jesus then going to the funeral, being saddened by Lazarus' death, and the family being overwhelmed, Jesus, but he waited, not because he's caliphant, but because he cares. That God would be glorified and that the people would come to see that Jesus is the resurrection of the, lot, of the dead so Jesus waits for his friends to find themselves in a desperate situation you can imagine what they're feeling, fear no doubt, apart from divine intervention they are going to drown right? their little fishing boat is not made for this kind of storm they're probably feeling confused they've seen Jesus do these signs, why would he send us out here maybe they're feeling angry of course he would He doesn't even care about us. In Mark chapter 4 we find a similar though different episode where the disciples find themselves at sea. There's a storm. They believe they're about to drown. Jesus is napping on the boat and they're yelling at him, don't you care? A silly thing to ask God who's come to die for them. We can imagine how they would respond because we know how we often respond. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how do you respond when the storms of life are overwhelming you? Do you feel as though God is present or distant? Do you trust in him or are you quick to accuse him of wrongdoing? Often, we just act like God harm, lack of control, and atheism. Jess, my wife, recently shared with me what's called the hourglass of anxiety. It's an image for how people respond to fear. Some people respond by avoiding what they fear. They don't go to the doctor. They never share the gospel. They don't rebuke their parents. They put off trying to get pregnant. Some people try to control. They double down in their efforts, right? They doomsday scroll. They yell at their children. They see the doctor more often than they ought. Okay, both are functional atheists. It leads to anxiety. The disciples, we see them, if you look at the text, what are they doing? They're rowing. They're working. They're trying to control. They're at the point in the storm where what they ought to be doing is praying. And in the darkness of cloud at night, they should be looking for the light of the world. They should be comforting each other with one another from truth from Scripture. You see, there's a way to row in faith and there's a way to row against it. The storm is beyond their skill. It's time to pray. If you've ever received counsel from our pastors, especially if you're struggling with anxiety, you probably have heard us ask you the question, what were your thoughts about God like during that episode? Like, what were you thinking about God? How is he present in the situation? Okay, when someone is driving around our city shooting innocent people and you're anxious, with worry, what were your thoughts about God like? Oh, I wasn't thinking about God atheism. What were you doing? I was sitting at my phone refreshing Twitter, control. You see, Jesus in his kindness, in his mercy, in control. He sends us what we fear the most that we might come to trust in him. Brothers and sisters, we are never in control and always in need. We struggle to believe this, and so Jesus puts us where we can feel it, not So that we double down in our efforts, but so that we would come to rest in Him. You might find yourself in a storm now. The economic recession is putting pressure on you, and you don't know how you'll provide for yourself or your family. Your child's medical care and potential for worse diagnoses are overwhelming you. You fear physical safety every time you leave your house. The idea of going to your job one more day makes you sick to your stomach. Your marriage is crumbling. Brothers and sisters, in a world marred by sin and the curse, there is potential for pain at every turn. If we were aware at how wrong everything could go in our lives, we would be even more anxious. You see, bringing good to us is a gift. It is the first step toward peace. Jesus does not send the storms of life to see whether or not we can row out of it. Rather, he sends them to show us we cannot, that we would draw closer to him. He wants us to come to the way that they would blow us to him. And the good news is that Jesus meets us in the storm. Jesus meets us in the storm. If you look there, verse 19, after they had rowed, About three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. Okay, the disciples are already afraid. They're fighting for their lives, and they look over, and they see Jesus getting in his steps for the day in the middle of the storm on the sea. Again, they were already afraid. They see Jesus walking. Look at verse 19 again. John stresses They're more afraid. Rather than feeling relief, the presence of Jesus at least initially creates more fear for them. Their fear increases. This is the only sign thus far that has actually created fear. Think about the other signs. Okay, you're at a wedding. The wine runs out. Jesus miraculously brings all this wine. Everyone's like, hey! The boy is kept from death. The layman is healed. You're astonished. You're filled with joy. You're feeling surprise and gratitude. Jesus walks on the water. Fear. Why? What is more terrifying than the wind and the waves? What is more frightening than death? What is scarier than the gates of Hades? The one who rules over them all. More distressing than a storm is a sinner. They do well to fear him more than the storm. And yet Jesus has not come to crush them, but to comfort them. Not with wind or wave, not with wrath or word. He comes to comfort. John three seventeen. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Christian, any suffering you might be experiencing right now is not a sign of God's anger to you. It was dealt with once and for all on the cross. The storms of suffering are intended to wash us onto the shores of Jesus. God actually uses pain in our lives to increase our pleasure in His Son, to increase our trust in His character, to stir up desire in us for His kingdom, to cause us to rest in Him and Him alone. So they are afraid of Christ before their God and King, their prophet and priest, but He's also their friend. Jesus draws near not to crush, but to comfort. And look at how he does it. Verse 20, he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. me, your Jesus. Not some impersonal force, not some abstract concept. It is me, your Jesus. God, come near. Like a child running to their parents in the middle of a storm, God longs for us to run to him with our fears. In his mercy, again, he sends us what scares us to drive us to him. And he tells us, don't be afraid, it's me, your God. More literally, Jesus responds, I am. Given Jesus' identity as God, given the miracle here of him walking on water, soon he will still the storm and bring them to shore. I think we're to take Jesus as applying God's personal name, Yahweh, This is it in Greek. I think Jesus is applying God's personal name to himself. Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks God for his name. God responds, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. That God is I am means that he is God. The unchanging God. The self-sufficient God. The dependable God. The covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the disciples see him. There's no need to be afraid. Perhaps the words of Isaiah chapter 43 were ringing in their ears. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. Do not fear, for I am. I am your God. I am your Savior. I am with you. Notice, apart from this experience, they would not have understood who Jesus is in the way that he says he is. Notice, again, the privilege that the disciples are experiencing that the crowds did not Jesus is revealing himself to them on his own terms. In the midst of the storm. In the midst of heartache and suffering. You contrast this with the 5,000 men who had plenty, who were full, who experienced prosperity. Jesus is here to give me what I want. Jesus will be the king of my kingdom. No, Jesus is the creator of the cosmos. He's the God of the land and the sea. He's the faithful covenant-keeping God of Israel He is the holy God who has come to suffer for sin. And the disciples, they get the privilege of meeting and receiving Jesus in the midst of trial. You see, it's in the suffering, it's in suffering that we often come face to face with our sin and need. It's as we experience the wickedness and hostility of the world, it's as we groan against the curse and its sway. It's then that we come face to face with God and we realize that he is sufficient for us. It's then that we realize and groan for his coming kingdom. It's there that we see he indeed does meet us to save us, that he cares for us and comforts us. We experience him in trial to be the God that he says he is. I am. Jesus draws near to his people and he comforts them. If you look again at the text, you'll notice that he does it with the word. Jesus speaks truth about himself to comfort his people. By simply saying, I am, it's your Jesus, he assures them that he's in control, that he's near to them, and that he would bring them home. You see, when the waves of the world crash upon us, God uses his word to comfort his people. I was just in D.C. last weekend with a few other brothers from the church. We were at a conference at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We were able to attend their evening service, and they're one of their primary in the Middle East. He's currently taking a break to go through their program before returning back to the Middle East to pastor and plant churches. Previously, he was in Afghanistan, and he shared this story with us as he was being interviewed. Local leaders in the city had posted flyers all around town, all over the near university, calling... For the men of the town to commit jihad against him, to kill him for Allah, he and his team and their families, they leave the city for about a week, then him and two other brothers, other missionaries, they make their way back to town to test the waters, right, to see if the storm was still brewing. They made it back, they eventually made it back to their house, they live kind of in a compound with a fence, probably several houses, the missionary houses, They were sitting on the couch near a window when they started to hear voices, a mob forming. Voices coming, getting louder and louder. The next thing they know, they saw a bright light. They heard a bang. Someone had thrown a grenade over the wall and landed by the window where they were at. They're thrown to the floor, of course. They immediately begin to crawl to the bathroom where they close themselves in and they wait to die. He says this is typical to finish the job, he said. As they sat on the ground in the bathroom, he said they started to share Scripture with one another. And he said something remarkable happened. They were not afraid. They experienced the peace of God. They believed they were about to be brutally from their families. And as they heard the wind and the waves beat against their boat, they were comforted by the words of Christ. Because He meets us in His Word. Brothers and sisters, good Friends and members, we encourage one another in the trials of life with our presence and with the word of God. It does, as we sang earlier, his word can bring a sweet relief for every pain we feel. Jesus meets us in the storm. He reveals himself in the storm. He draws us near to himself in the storm. He comforts Himself, us in the storm. And importantly, Jesus also leads us through the storm. Jesus leads us through the storm. Now to be clear, and this brother made it known as well, even as they're comforting one another with promises from God's word, he said there was no promise from God that they would make it out of that bathroom. No guarantee they would see their families again. They understood, as with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shadrach and Benny, if you grew up, can do something doesn't mean he will. The saints of old, they told Nebuchadnezzar, God can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, O king. But even if he does not, we will not serve you. What gave those men such confidence, such courage in the face of wicked men? It's not the promise that God will end all of our suffering here. It's the promise he will... Get us home. Brothers and sisters, there is no guarantee you will beat your diagnosis. There is no guarantee your child's health will improve. There is no promise from God that your relationship with your parents will get better. No promise your boss will stop discriminating against you. No promise you'll have to stop carrying mace when you leave your house. Not in this life at least. Yes, sometimes life feels like smooth sailing. More often than not, clouds are dark and the billows roll. But the promises we have from God are greater than the threats that we face. We have been adopted in the Son. We have been sealed by His Spirit. We have been forgiven by the blood. We have been baptized into His body, the church. Storm or still sea, we know that God Himself will lead us home. And He leads us by His very hand. Mornings, you might not know how you'll make it through this week. God himself will get you home. Picture the scene again. The storm is threatening the disciples. Their fear only increases when they see Christ walking toward them. Jesus identifies himself as the great I am, their Jesus. And then verse 21, they were willing to take him on board And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Now, if you've read this account in the synoptics, or you might even remember when Pastor Josh preached through Mark, Mark and Matthew have a different stress of this account. Their stress lies somewhere else in Jesus' power to stop the wind and the waves. John doesn't even record that for us. No doubt it happened, of course. What John wants us to see is something different. It's that Jesus gets his people home. Jesus always gets his people home. Not one saint who has put their hope in Christ has not made it to that golden shore. It doesn't matter how young or old they died. It doesn't matter how they died or where they died. It doesn't matter how how sick or healthy they were. It doesn't matter how big or small their faith was. Jesus is record is perfect. The one who came from heaven to seek out his... There will not be one saint missing in heaven. He walks on the water, yes. He calms the storm, yes. What John wants us to see is that Jesus, heaven's son, brings his people home. The strength of your doubt and sin will not overcome his love and power. The fears that overwhelm you do not trouble him. You may be anxious about tomorrow, but Christ is not. Matthew Henry the Puritan wrote, If we have received Christ the Lord, have received him willingly, though the night be dark and the wind be high, yet we may comfort ourselves with this, that we shall be at shore shortly and are nearer to it than we think we are. God has brought us one day closer to him today and he will see us the whole way home. Jesus gets us home. Why? He is the great I am, the faithful covenant-keeping Lord, the command of Psalm 107 we heard from earlier about the Lord bringing the storm. The psalmist continues, verse 28 They were in trouble, so they called to the Lord for help, and he saved them from their troubles. He stopped the storm and calmed the waves. The sailors were happy that the sea had become calm, and he led them safely to where they wanted to go. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Jesus takes us where we want to go. Notice if you look at the text again that the harder the disciples struggled, the more they trusted in themselves, the further they got to see. What does Jesus want from them? Verse 21. What does he ask from them? To simply receive him, to trust him, to rest in him. Notice he takes him to shore immediately, he spares him from even having to row. He takes him home as a gift. If you're not a Christian and you're visiting us this morning, I hope one thing that you can hear from this sermon is that we do not have it all together. The Christian life is not the promise of an easy life here. It is the promise of a good life because we have God as our Father. We have Christ as our brother. His Spirit has sealed us. Most importantly, our hope is in heaven. We are confident we will make it not because we're good people, but because himself has done the work for us. The good news of the gospel is that God himself has done for us what we could not. He sent his son, the Jesus we heard about this morning, to live perfectly on our behalf and then yet die for our sins and to raise from the dead that we might be forgiven and free. And he offers it to you this morning. He says, it's me, it's Jesus. Receive me by faith. Again, if you're not a Christian, I think this is one of the best places you could be in all of Memphis this morning. If you want to hear more about Jesus, we love to talk about him. You could find any one of our members after service. The disciples find themselves in the midst of a trial. It probably felt like an eternity. You might be in such a season now, or you might be able to look back on seasons, right? It feels like it'll never end. I'll never get over this loss of life. I'll never be able to find work again. I'll always be lonely. The heartache is so heavy, it feels like it weighs down time. Ten or five or 20 years later, you look back and it feels like a weird dream. Something that was distant. I love that John includes this note that immediately, at once they were at shore, their relief is dramatic. Our break from this world will be drastic. Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Second Corinthians chapter 4, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. What felt like an eternity for John as he was there on the sea in Revelation 21, he can't even see it. Immediately, at once, his break with his life was drastic. Brothers and sisters, the weight you may feel now, you will hardly remember then. When you die, or when Jesus comes back in an instant, you will be relieved of all earthly suffering and sin, and you will be made to be like him. We'll look back, and our sufferings will feel light momentary compared to the weight of glory we experience in heaven. Well, it'll be like, I I almost forgot about that. That 20 or 30 years of struggling with this sin or this sickness or this loneliness. I almost forgot about it. What's clear is God's faithfulness. What's obvious is he got me home. What's certain is I will never suffer again. John can't even see the sea. Brothers and sisters, our future is certain. Jesus, the great I am. Cyril of Alexandria writes, the Lord does not board the boat with his disciples like a fellow sailor. Instead, he anchors the boat at the shore. He gets his people home. It's as we sang earlier, Christ the... when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross the great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. He sends the storms, yes, To give us more of himself. Brothers and sisters, it is better to be near Christ as the waves rise than to be alone on land. May we grow to say with Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. We see the winds and the waves of life, they actually throw us upon Christ. One day the wave of death will wash us upon his, me, your Jesus. I knew you'd make it. Not because of us, but because of Him. He's our Jesus. Let's pray.